0: but this man came up to me afterwards and he was a professor at Edgill University and he had been involved in some of the um, judging panel and he was asking me different questions about um, what I'd done and a bit more about the charity and how I'd grown it as a business I must have said something to him that sounded more negative or something I'm not sure but I wasn't well and he just said lady you need to start thinking you are the number one businesswoman and you must not forgive that. And and you know you're not thinking like a businesswoman, but you are a brilliant businesswoman. I came away and I drove on from Manchester, and I thought he's absolutely right. If I had done in the private sector what I've done here, I would probably be on five times my current salary. Um, you know, it, it'd just be it'd be seen totally differently. The perception is
1: totally different because it's a charity. welcome to the she leads business show for female owners and leaders of small and medium-sized businesses you are in the right place if you want a more aligned success to make a greater impact and to have happy engaged high performing and inflow teams that you trust to get the job done allowing you to ditch the stress and firefighting to focus on your most fulfilling high value work and to have the financial and time freedom to live the life you truly desire and deserve. I'm your host, Una Doyle, founder of CreativeFlow.tv and I'm a speaker, business strategist and impact coach. Business owners and leaders hire me to help them to achieve impact-driven growth. Yet not every business owner is in the position to hire me, so I created this podcast, and in every episode, myself and my guests share the stories, strategies, and actionable wisdom to help you to achieve this too. Now, on with the show. Hello, hello, hello. It is Una Doyle here, host of She Leads Business. And I am so excited today because we have Maura Jackson from Backup. And I'm really pleased to welcome you to the show, Maura. Please, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and what Backup does? Yes,
0: my name is Maura Jackson. I'm the Chief Executive at Backup Northwest. We are a homeless service for young people aged 16 to 25 and we provide accommodation support in the Bolton area for 100 young people at any one time. We accommodate roughly about 300 every year. Uh, but in addition to my full-time role at Backup, I am also the Chair of the Trustees at Endeavour Domestic Abuse Charity.
1: You're a busy lady. Yes. <laughs> a very busy lady, indeed. Um, one of the things I'd like to ask you, actually, is... What is one common myth about working for a charity? I think that the biggest
0: myth that we come across is that somehow uh, it means that you are either not paid, um, so I think people equate charity with voluntary, um, or that somehow it is not as professional as other sectors, which in our case, I can only speak for us, is absolutely not the case.
1: Interesting. You've had a lot of challenges in your role with backup and there was a particular time when you had, you suddenly found that you'd lost a lot of your grant support. Tell me more about that and how did you actually handle it?
0: Yes, well, this was about three years ago and in um, three consecutive months, I was notified of three in-year cuts, which is not what you want uh, when you're working for a charity. Um, the first one was for ninety-two thousand pounds. The second one was for about twelve and a half, and then another one came at about thirty. And you know, after the first one, I thought, right, you know, I need a plan. I need to be able to, uh, you know, um, manage the budget, but also bring in additional income. But when the second cut came, and then the third cut, um, I'll be honest with you. I sat in my office. I got the third letter by email, cried. Uh, burst into tears and thought no it's nearly 150 grand I'm never going to be able to recover from this the biggest expenditure that we have as a charity is our staff costs because everything is about people and the relationships that young people have with staff and so the only things that were left to cut was the staff uh, if I couldn't bring the money in so I cried for most of that day Um, and then I went home kind of you know regrouped give myself a bit of a talking to started to write down a plan um, presented that to the board a couple of days later and said you know this is the scenario just absolutely hammered applications for funding lots of other ways of um, securing unrestricted income spoke to lots of different people was networking like a mad person and then just eventually um, in my world when we put grant applications in I try and put about 10 in in the hope of getting about three back put about nine in and got all nine back um, and ended up not only closing the gap that had been created with the funding of £150,000, but ended that year in another £150,000 surplus. So, happy days.
1: Well, I absolutely love that story. It is... I think it's really testament to the approach that you took. And I think there's a lot of organizations that can look at what you did there and apply it to the circumstances that many organizations are going through right now. And I think cutting headcount is often the first thing that companies think about when they have a shortfall, whereas often there are ways that they can increase their revenues or cut their costs or restructure their services and offerings without actually, you know, cutting headcount. Um, of course there are times when that might be necessary particularly right now you know certainly in certain industries yes I think often people do it as a knee-jerk reaction well you know people panic and you can understand that in some scenarios
0: um, and sometimes they're under enormous pressure but my uh, it would be my absolute last resort to want to reduce the headcount a lot I mean if anything I want to increase it not lower it um and so as a result you know we got through that period of um instability and you know reached the stage where we are now expanding again and about to open two new services which means another 10 staff
1: wonderful so how many staff
0: do you have in total now at the moment we've got 70 so 52 are kind of core staff you know it's the main job and then we have another 20 roughly that do sessional work, bank work, shift work for us.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a big impact. I was looking at your website, and you know, some of the results that you have there, you have got 260 young people moved on successfully, 95% of young people said that it improved their finances, 77% of young people reported improvements in mental health and well-being and 65% of young people reduced or ceased self-harm.
0: Pretty I significant. Mean, speak for themselves, don't they really? And, you know, mental health in particular during coronavirus lockdown has gone through the roof. And I would say that well into the 90% of people are affected now adversely through uh, mental ill health or just poor um well wellbeing, poor mental health as a result of the
1: lockdown you know young people it's been really really sad. So you, you've seen a real increase in that aspect of the people who are coming through your services?
0: Yes I mean mental health and sexual exploitation are the things that have increased the most over the last two or three years in terms of the, the young people that have been referred to us but because of specifically the coronavirus lockdown, the challenge on young people about you know, self-distancing uh, and social isolating really goes against everything that we've tried to encourage, which is to be inclusive, to get together, to embrace peer support, to get involved in group activities, to share. Um, so everything that we've been using as the sort of underpinning all our practice has had to stop and um you know on top of not being able to see their own family and friends and their own peers that really has left them in a position where they felt incredibly isolated um and so if you can imagine the young people that came to us with mental ill health in the first place you know that has just really compounded what they were already experiencing so i mean in the last seven eight weeks we have had eight we've intervened with eight suicide attempts Wow. Well it has been a significant impact but having said that we have, like a lot of other businesses, had to change our approach and make sure that we are accessible in different ways, that we are providing hacks for people, boredom packs that we're engaging remotely like this on Zoom, you know, but using a lot more telephone contact. We've carried on with doorstep visits, although confidentiality is a bit tricky, Um, but we've made sure that we've had regular contact with people throughout Um, and now we are starting to do home visits again subject to risk assessments and make sure that everybody's uh, protected because of the um, risk around mental health being so high for us at the moment.
1: Well it's, it's great to hear what an amazing job you're doing and it's obviously very very much needed. Maura tell me more about how did you actually end up In the position that you're in like where did you start your career
0: well i was a teenage single mum and uh i needed some money i didn't want to be a stay-at-home benefits mum and i decided that uh, i would look for a job and the the one that i saw that appealed was a temporary uh filing clerk for the housing benefits department in the town hall and um, it was only for six weeks and i thought well that'll do give me a bit of money Um, and I stayed for seven years in the end (laughs) and so I ended up doing three jobs while I was there but I also was able to apply for and secure um, funding to do a part-time degree so the housing department sponsored my degree and I did that on day release for five years Um, so when I finally got that that was you know fantastic Um, And at the same time, then, I was uh, working in youth work. I was doing that voluntary initially, and then I got paid work when I was qualified. So I was doing youth work in the evenings and weekends and doing the daytime work as a housing officer for the housing department. And then a job came up at Bolton Young Persons Housing Scheme, which is where I work now. We've got a different name. So this same charity where I work now, I went and worked there as a support worker combining the youth work and the housing work together to work with young people in housing, obviously. So it was the perfect combination. And I did that for two and a half years. Absolutely loved it. But I've been on to work in, uh, I've worked in women's refuges. I've managed services for uh, homeless families. I've managed services for single homeless women. So it's always been down a homeless, social care type route. And then I ended up with a senior role with the Ministry of Justice, developing services for women offenders. Um, as an alternative to custody. Well, I really enjoyed that. Did not enjoy so much working for central government. I'm not very good with bureaucracy. I like some freedom and some creativity and there isn't much of that in uh, in central government. There's far too many, uh, just too much red tape. But then I went and got a job as um, a CEO of a domestic abuse charity in West London. And for the few years that was the, I trebled the size of that organisation, and um, then the job here came up. The director of Bolton Young Persons Housing Scheme, as it was called then, and as I'd worked here before, and already knew the principles of the organisation, um, and I wanted to come back to Bolton. I'd spent four years in London; I'd had enough, really. And um, I came back, and here we are—eight and a half years later—I'm still here.
1: I'm curious about something. You mentioned that you tripled the size of the organisation in London. Yes. What was the source of that growth? What did you do that made that work?
0: Okay, when I arrived, we had a contract to deliver an IDVA service, which is a high-needs, high-risk service for uh, women fleeing violence. And uh, it was covering Hammersmith and Fulham and Brent. Um, And then the contract came available, was put out to tender for... Westminster, and Kensington and Chelsea, as a a joint contract. And I basically applied for that, wrote the tender myself, uh, I'm proud to say, and won it. Um, So straight overnight, then, we chupied in a team across from the two other boroughs. um, We grew. And at the same time of doing that, because I'd worked at the Ministry of Justice before, setting up centres for women, for women offenders, I had approached our board and said there's some money coming available now as a result of the work I did at Ministry of Justice, we could apply for it because it is for women's organisations, but it's to work with women at risk of offending. And the board were not happy about that. They were saying, you know, we've historically always worked with women who are victims um, and survivors of offending. Uh, They're not the offenders. And I said, well, actually, if you look at the statistics, um, a woman who is experiencing high risk domestic violence is really at high risk of offending because of pure retaliation. Um, And that's if you don't take into effect the other uh, issues that lead women into offending, which is around um, extreme poverty, not being able to provide for children and families, homelessness, mental health, abortion, those things that actually we dealt with so much in the domestic abuse service. So at this point, I was still in my probationary period and the board was saying, you want us to take this tremendous risk, completely diversify our portfolio just on your say-so. I said, yeah, do it. It'll be really good. Uh, Anyway, they said, okay. So I put a bid in for half a million pounds with the Ministry of Justice and got that. And I set up a women's centre in Hammersmith um, it's actually in Fulham but in the borough of Hammersmith and Fulham and um, it's called the Minerva Centre which I named which I'm very proud of and it's still going which I'm still very proud of so that left that organisation with an opportunity then they have become the lead provider across the London boroughs for services for women offenders as a result of that blueprint so I feel I've left a great legacy there
1: I love the fact that you stood your ground when they were questioning you. I think so often, as so often women won't stand their ground when it comes to these kinds of challenges. What do you think makes you do that? Where does that come from?
0: Well, at that time, I really believed in what it was doing. And because I've been doing it for three and a half years, living and breathing. And I had set up the pilot projects for the Ministry of Justice to demonstrate how successful they could be. So I knew um, the, the DNA of the projects. I knew how to set one up. I knew what women uh, would be, uh, the cohort, you know, the the, type, the audience, if you like. I knew how to engage with the stakeholders. I knew where to find the money. Um, I had been responsible for securing 15 million pound in the government to roll it out nationally um to then apply for it on the other side as a provider was an absolute no-brainer in my mind. I knew I could do it. I'd written, you know, I've written the blueprints. Um what I had to do was convince them. So I had the stats. So I had the knowledge and I had the stats. And I suppose, you know, sometimes I had the I had the backbone to be able to say, no, honestly, it's really, it really will complement what we're doing. Um, it won't be a conflict. And I I made a business case, I didn't just go in and say, please do it you know, I put together a strong written business case with a risk management strategy and thought, no, this really is the right way to go. There isn't anything like it in London. Um, The pilots have been in the Northwest and in Yorkshire and Humber. So I knew there wasn't anything like that down South. And, um, you know, it's been an absolute resounding success. So sometimes when I've been to other boards and, um, you know, asked for something that I've been really passionate about, the answer has been no. And I had to accept it, but I also know when I'm, I know the difference. I know when to push and when to say, okay, that's fine. You're following your good governance and due diligence, and that's that's the right thing to do, and I'll back down. I also know when it's time to sort of say, no, honestly, this really is the right thing for this organization.
1: I live and breathe it. So, data, evidence. Absolutely. A sense of conviction. Yeah.
0: Yeah, some knowledge, you know, and a track record as well, which now stood me instead. You know, I had a track record of making this work. So they, they took a risk, but it's paid off for them. Paid off for me also.
1: And it has paid off for the many women who have been through those programs. Hundreds, hundreds. And of hundreds their families. Of yeah, yeah. Fabulous. I want to share... A statistic with you i'm calling this a our speak up statistic slot <laughs> where i look at the numbers around women in business women in leadership and get your opinion on it so here's a bit um which is the the southwest of england has the highest proportion of female-run businesses according to latest research from seventy thousand small businesses across the uk so they found that almost two in five, 39%, uh, SMEs in the southwest are run by women. Now, that's closely followed by Wales, where 36% belong to females. Yet in the North West and other areas of the UK, the numbers aren't anywhere near that. What's your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I mean, there'll be a gazillion factors that contribute to this so there's the postcode lottery there's geography but there's geography linked to um the economy and then there's geography linked to education um and then there's geography linked to opportunity so whether there's opportunity for investment that's different in other areas that isn't available in the north um it could be you know i don't believe that women in the north lack confidence or lack the skills because um I'm one of them. I've met them. I meet loads of them on a daily basis. They're everywhere. Um, but I think that the factors are, you know, it's timing. It's about other responsibilities that people have. Um, you know, and what's going on locally, politically. Um, you know, there's there's always a political imbalance between geographical areas in the country. And um, you know, some places are really good at supporting startup businesses through the Local authority and public sector, you know, they really push for that. Others less so. So it's about where local authorities want to put the money in terms of supporting local businesses. Um, And I think once something, once a seed is sown in an area, it thrives and somebody has to just keep looking after that and, and promoting it. But I think where it's not cultivated, it just dies a death. And and I think the same applies to other sectors like retail or um, travel, you know, it just depends on on the area and what, you know, you you get back what you put in and if people feel that they haven't got the opportunity or the skills or the confidence, then it will impact on long-term where they go with that. And I've met so many women who have actually gone into business for themselves as a result of some sort of epiphany that they've had. So they've been many, many years in the corporate sector or private sector or public sector even, and then suddenly thought, no, either an illness or a a change of family circumstances or something, and all of a sudden, you know, they're the next Richard Branson and they're doing really well and it's fantastic and they wonder why they never did it 20 years ago. Um, So it's very hard to pin down and say, you know, specifically one particular area. Doesn't have as many as another um but the south are you know cash rich aren't they and they've got a different level of investments
1: investment is definitely a key and it there's there's some other statistics i'm going to be sharing in other episodes about the difference in investment in women-owned businesses and men-owned businesses. And it's quite stark, quite stark, I can tell you. You One of the things that occurred to me, I mean, I live in the Northwest myself and it's a very industrialized area. And I did wonder if part of that is that there definitely are particular industries that often women-owned businesses tend to be more in, like they have a higher percentage of ownership. Uh, So I did wonder if that was part of the reason, but you know, absolutely what you're saying in terms of the support that is there can make such, such a big difference. And I think this is where hubs really come into their own. That is often not just one type of support, that there often needs to be a whole hub of support in different yeah. ways to actually have something grow. Um, you know, as, as you were saying, it makes me think about Um, some conversations I've had about creativity and business. And uh, many, many, many years ago, and I'm I'm not the best at history, (laughs) so I can't tell you exactly when this was. Um, But there there were times when uh, there was a huge artistic hub in Florence, in Italy. and you you can see it in the architecture and all the beautiful statues and everything that you find there from an artistic point of view. And how that actually came about is there was a lot of political unrest and fighting going on, like all these little mini wars with kind of the different Italian states that existed at that time. And the business men, as it would have been in those days in Florence, all started supporting artists with the very specific view of, let's make this city so beautiful that nobody will destroy it. And it actually worked for miles and miles and miles around other towns and villages and cities were ruined and the soldiers did not do that to Florence. Wow. Yes, actually. So now, but people who don't know that just think, oh, wow, Florence, Florence is this hub of, you know, wonderful creativity, yet actually it was supported by the business community. So an actual strategy to stay safe also. Yes. <laughs> Impressive. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and I'd love to for you to share some of the for, for those listeners who maybe aren't at CEO level yet, I'd love to understand more about what are your day-to-day activities like. So, and actually, the, the change, the shift from not being CEO to being CEO. So tell me about your first day as CEO at Backup.
0: My first day as CEO at Backup was the day that Law was launched. And because I had been so heavily involved in domestic abuse uh, in the previous role that i just left, I uh, was contacted by Sky News to make comments on closed Law. And I said, oh, I'm now working elsewhere. I work at this place. And you know, if you want to ask somebody else, that's absolutely fine. And they said, no, we will send somebody from Sky News to come and interview you wherever you are. So I had to ring the board and say, it's day one, Sky News are coming. They're going to interview me in the garage because there's nowhere else to do it. Uh, Is that okay? And they said, yeah, that's fine. So that was day one. But the that was in the afternoon. In the morning, my predecessor had been in post for 13 years. It was a lovely, lovely lady. Is a lovely lady. um, And was absolutely ready for retirement. Um, And in the three months notice that I'd given in London, text me every week to say, it's 111 days now till you come and take over and I can leave it's 74 days now till you come to Bolton like right stop it anyway when I arrived we'd arranged to have um, a four-day handover a transition which was going to be incredibly helpful and at half past 11 she said uh, I got there at nine o'clock and at half past 11 she said uh, she sat back she went I said are you okay and she said yeah I'm going on though I said or are you not feeling well and she said no I'm feeling inadequate and you are absolutely more than capable and I'm tired and I'm going home and if you need anything can you just ring me I said okay and then Sky News rang so the day went in a flash
1: <laughs> what a marvellous first day How many people do you know with outdated websites that do not generate any business for them? We've gone way past the stage where your website is simply an online brochure. Your website visitors expect more. And today, the affordable tools to have a high converting website are at your fingertips. Now, I want to emphasize that there are times and certain industries where you will want to work with specialist web developers, where they're doing everything customized from scratch and you know, maybe integrating certain apps into your business, or perhaps you might need to use a specialist platform, such as if you're in e-commerce. For the rest of us though, I highly recommend this resource because it will not only allow you to create a conversion-focused website, it has the training and support to help you to do it too. What am I talking about? Thrive Themes. Conversion-focused WordPress themes and plugins. They're built from the ground up to make your entire website convert more of your visitors into subscribers, customers and clients. Now, if you have ever experienced problems, I know I certainly used to do, with WordPress plugins not playing nicely together, you will absolutely love this. Because within the Thrive Suite, you get access to everything, not just themes, but even a theme builder too, in case you want to customise things a bit more. And by the way, both the builder and the visual editor, Thrive Architect, where you do your pages and posts, it's all drag and drop. So they're super easy to use. There's over 327 beautiful conversion-focused landing page templates. So you can ditch any separate system that you're using for that. There's also Thrive Leads, which means you can create and design every type of opt-in form You're able to run A-B tests on those and grow your list faster than ever before. And, of course, you're able to integrate it with your mailing list and or your CRM. You're able to create fully customised quizzes that allow you to gain valuable visitor insights. Um, It'll help you to segment your email list, to drive website engagement and, of course, get social shares with Thrive Quiz Builder. Now, I love this and you might have seen several quizzes that I've created over the years. Plus, you're even able to build professional online courses with Thrive Apprentice, make commenting fun and engagement with Thrive Comments, do A-B testing for landing pages with Thrive Optimize. You can create evergreen, countdown, scarcity campaigns. And one of the things that I love is you can gather and display testimonials for social proof. Now I personally have been a Thrive customer for years and unlike a lot of internet marketing companies out there I trust Shane who who runs this fir- firm and his team completely. They are 100% focused on improving the product suite and our experience with them. They consistently are doing product updates and sharing valuable trainings. And there's even a whole Thrive University that teaches you why and when to use certain plugins as well as how to use them. And of course, because it's all part of the Thrive Suite, Everything works together. There's hardly anything that I use in addition to Thrive Themes. So go check them out at creativeflow.tv forward slash Thrive Themes or use the link in the description. And um, Just for those people who may not be aware, could you quickly explain what Claire's Law is? Claire's Law was the law
0: that was introduced in 2012 to... Uh, protect uh, women who might be at risk of domestic or other sort of familial abuse where you can uh, go to a police station, uh, you or a relative, anybody actually, a friend, and you can ask for a disclosure on a named individual that you think might be a perpetrator and putting somebody that you know or yourself at risk. The police will not disclose to anyone outside that person's history, but you, the person affected, they will come and tell you. A member of my family they wouldn't come and tell me the details of that person but they would go to that member of my family that I thought was at risk and say you need to know there's previous convictions for x y and z or not you know it might be that you're wrong or your you know your instinct is is off which is fine that's what it's there for um and anybody can use it we've used it here at backup as an employer to protect an employee We've used it at Backup to protect young people um, from people that they've been developing relationships with, and that has worked very successfully. Um, we've done it quite recently, actually, with um, someone who's turned out to be a sex offender. So, you know, in terms of child protection um, and keeping young people safe, it's absolutely vital, but anyone can use it. You just turn up to the police station.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. I didn't know those details of it and I'm sure there's many listeners that uh, that don't either. So now you know if that is uh, relevant for you or someone that you care about, then you know what to do with it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. What's the best compliment you've ever received?
0: Oh my goodness. Wow. Not obviously, uh, normally speech. I had a compliment I was given recently. Was it, I don't know if it's the best one I've ever had. Um, I've been married three times. You would hope that this is not the best one I've ever had, but um, I went to um, a business awards with the Institute of Directors. This is about two years ago and I was ill. I didn't really want to be there. I was, I was rough, ill, um, some sort of flu. And then I went with my husband and it was late. It was middle of the week. And um, they had a, I was up for category, Director of the Year for uh, the third sector and there was a lot of competition, never been involved with the Institute of Directors before. And this place was packed and I won it. And it was unbelievable. And I just, I mean, I was just floating on her. It was absolutely amazing. But this man came up to me afterwards and he was a professor at Edge University. And he had been involved in some of the um, judging panel. And he was asking me different questions about um, what I'd done and a bit more about the charity and how I'd grown it as a business. And I must have said something to him that sounded, uh, I don't know, negative or something. I'm not sure, but I wasn't well. And he just said, lady, you need to start thinking you are the number one businesswoman and you must not forgive that. And, and you know, you're not thinking like a businesswoman, but you are a brilliant businesswoman. And I came away and I drove on from Manchester and I thought, he's absolutely right. If I had done in the private sector, what I've done here, I would probably be on five times my current salary. Um, You know, it'd just be, it'd be seen totally differently. The perception is totally different because it's a charity, but I have from day one, a bit like the people of Florence, developed a strategy to keep the organisation safe and to build it. And what I was told in my brief when I started was, can you please just stabilise us and can you diversify the income? Because we've got one source of income and it's just very, very risky. I think we've got about 25 sources of income now and we've gone from a turnover of £460,000 a year to £2.9 this year. So it is a big increase, not just in turnover, but in staff, in the numbers of uh, units that we can provide to young people it's also the quality of service that we're providing to each young person is a lot higher than it used to be uh, it's a lot more intensive we have a lot more extras there's a lot more on offer um, because the young people's needs are a lot more complex things are changing but it's growing and it's still growing i'm getting ready to expand again
1: <laughs> so what are your next goals
0: well, in the organisation, we are about to open a, a new block of flats with 12 flats in. So that should be sort of October time, Self, uh, self-contained and completely furnished accommodation. Lovely, lovely flats. And we've also got a four-bedroom house that's coming online for some uh, young people that are able to share, that need that more of a, a community sharing situation. And um, we've got the social enterprise, which is the van. So I've been developing the idea of having a mobile coffee van selling coffee and cake for several years, really. An idea given to me by a friend, uh, an old colleague. And I thought, right, you know, we can do this. We can set it up. And so we, uh, I, I applied for some social uh, investment funding, which I got. So we've actually got the physical van. We spent a year trying to come up with a fantastic name that would be catchy and relevant. And, um, you know, when we got the vehicle, I was saying, you know, we're having it wrapped and we've not got a name and we had competitions and internally we had competitions with young people. Um, it just didn't come back with anything that was either, you know, legal or, (laughs) you know, some of the ideas were a bit wacky, but, um, anyway, I've just called it the van because that's what I've been referring to it as two years. And I thought it's easy. I'm just going to call it the van. So it's called the van. Very exciting. Um, But it's in the car park and we were all ready to set trading in April when the lockdown came on and uh, suspended everything. But it's there, ready, waiting in the wings. We're ready to go. Um, We're trying to recruit now for a full-time project manager to run it as a project. So that'd be a great job for somebody. Um, But um, yeah, so those are the goals really for the next six to nine months. You know, get past the coronavirus lockdown, make sure that we come out of that safely. Um, for everybody, for the, the staff and the young people alike, and then to develop those three services because the van, the aim is to raise awareness about the rest of the organisation, but it is to make a profit, which we're a not for profit organisation. So the difference is, is that it will be raising money with an actual income to put back into the charity every year, which is unrestricted and it gives us a lot of freedom and we can be more creative about the services that we're providing. So it just provides us with some stability and security. But the the offshoot from that is that by running it as a service, we can give young people the opportunity to volunteer on it as well. So they can develop skills for employability later on um, around, you know, dealing with customers, cash handling, hygiene, just etiquettes around dealing with a team, you know, being on time, those sort of softer skills. Um, So I can't wait to get started with that and see... My little vision, the little van, you know, bobbling around and uh, and selling cappuccinos and lemon drizzle cake.
1: Maura, I have no doubt that if I was to talk to you in three years' time about this, you probably would have ten vans on the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> fabulous. Apart from the whole pandemic situation, what challenges do you anticipate with implementing these goals?
0: Well, we're facing one at the moment. And that is that one of the buildings is not ready and it's overdue. Um, and so we were ready to move into it at the start of the year, but the lockdown came, the staff that were working on that, the, you know, the building and construction staff were furloughed. So it is um, difficult because we have now got a waiting list of 60 to 65 young people, which is the highest it's ever been in our entire existence. Um, and it's really bad because it means that young people will either have to wait an incredibly long time before they get into one of our services and in that time could be at risk of all sorts of things you know exploitation and what have you so 20% of the young people that we accommodate have slept rough 20% have had sex with someone in order to have somewhere to stay overnight and these are statistics that don't sit right with me I just don't think young people should be able to make choices like that in order to have somewhere to sleep so this new building would be a direct access emergency provision and we need it now more than ever so the challenge for me is uh, you know we're here ready you know ready to sort of get going as soon as possible but we're at the mercy of the external actors around coronavirus but around you know building regulations surveyors And the needs of sort of other businesses which is absolutely fair enough i do understand it it is frustrating
1: absolutely well best of luck with that i'm 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 sure you will do everything and and everything and anything that you can to make that work Maura, tell me about a time when you made yourself vulnerable as a leader
0: oh what's an interesting question um I think, there's, I think as a leader, when you're the chief exec, and I, I don't know if this cuts across all sectors, but I'm sure it does, there's a level of vulnerability all the time, because you're in such an isolated position. So you might have a board of, I mean, I have a board of trustees, other people will have a board of directors or investors or stakeholders, um, you know, that you go to, that you're accountable to. But... You know, they want to see confident, prepared, uh, stable person, they don't want to see somebody who's panicking. Um, oh, I don't know what I want to do, right you know, that, that's not what they want to see. You can't betray that, even if that's how you felt. Um, I mean, not that I feel like that very often, but it has happened. And I think the things when I've made myself vulnerable is when um, I changed jobs, so I took a risk in taking this job in the first place and took a 20,000 pound pay cut to take this job um, from London. So about half of that was London waiting. So that's okay. You don't have the same expenses, but the other half wasn't. So, but I really wanted to take this job and I thought I'll grow it. I'll grow it in the same way that I grew the last place. If I've done it once I can do it again. So I made myself personally vulnerable. Um, at that time, through reducing my income significantly, um, without any backup, had on the pun, <laughs> and um, yeah, I think there's a few times where I've sort of stuck my neck out, you know, I mean I gave the example of going with the business case and saying no, we need to do this, but I, I think one of the things that springs to mind now is around HR, and in our organisation, my senior management team we comment on this regularly that we pride ourselves on having very high standards for our staff in terms of what we expect from them. We treat them really, really well. And we want 150%, we we give 100%. I mean, we the staff we've got are absolutely marvellous. But occasionally we've had a couple of people that haven't been marvellous. It's just the way it goes, you know, and the bigger you get, the risk of that happening is always higher. But I think one of the things that where I feel vulnerable is taking HR action because I'm not a HR qualified person and I'm at the mercy of someone else who gives us that advice. And you know, you're taking action against people where you might be ending the contract either immediately or with notice. And I feel, you know, that is not a pleasant thing to have to do, but it protects the organisation, it protects the young people, it protects the business and our reputation. And, you know, without sort of breaching confidentiality and saying why, I have had to let people go both in this role and the last role. And that's when I feel at my most vulnerable because I'm not the source of that knowledge. I don't know employment law like somebody in HR would do. It's not my skill set. I'm having to rely on them for step by step. Um, Not instruction because I know our internal procedures, but in terms of the law, you know, what is acceptable in law? Um but when I look outside at other organisations that don't do that and suffer as a result of it because they feel sorry for people or they don't like having difficult conversations, um, especially small or small organisations, but it can be it it can be devastating and impact of having a bad person in your organisation can be devastating. The ripple effects of having them and it demotivates the people around them. So I don't like having to deal with that sort of stuff, but I, w- I will deal with it head on. People who don't fit in the organization don't stay. If they're not doing right by our young people, don't stay.
1: Well, I totally applaud that and couldn't agree more. <laughs> I've seen so many situations where people haven't addressed someone who isn't a good fit, you know, and whether it's a, they're not a good fit culturally or they're not a good fit. Because of you know they're doing something that they shouldn't or not doing something that they should, yeah. And it you know what you were saying about the impact on other people. I think a lot of leaders, they don't, they either don't realize or they don't acknowledge how big that impact is. In fact, in well, obviously it was a few months ago when we were networking in person. I was sat next to somebody at an event, chatting to them about what they did. They'd been in in this new business. Well, they'd been in this business, which was a youngish business, but I think there was about, I don't know, maybe eight, ten people in it. And six months in, they were already hacked off that there was one or two people who weren't pulling their weight and they were getting away with it. Yeah. And I don't think that can be underestimated how demoralizing that is. This person felt I'm working really hard, I'm making a lot of effort, I'm going the extra mile. And yes, they get away with not doing what they ought to be doing. Yeah. And we, yeah. we
0: will, We, you know, once we know that that's happening, once that's been brought to our attention, we absolutely are on it. And, and you can't relay back to the team every time you've pulled somebody in and said, you know, come on now, we need to reset your targets because our initial approach will always be about welfare. We'll always look at a person's welfare first Mm. and then rule out that, you know, nothing is is sort of um, needs dealing with. And then once we've done that, then it's like, well, right, you know, you're fit for work. There's no issues. We need to relook at your targets and set you some deadlines. You know, we might do that once or twice. The Conversation might get a bit more stern, but it's all recorded. And, um, you know there comes a point when we 're a charity and you can 't just take wages from us and not perform life 's not like that i'm afraid um you know the young people deserve one hundred and fifty percent from this organization they're on the knees and they 've got no one else to fight the corner except us and as you say, you know eight ten people, which is about the rough size of most of my teams, one or two people not pulling the weight um letting others carry them and not responding, not coming in, not being reliable, it really has a massive impact on people's motivation, their attitude towards us as an organisation, and I think that when we do act and they can see physical action, um, you know, when it is really, really serious, obviously, then I think it makes them feel reassured that, you know, yeah, they won't, they won't stand for this, and actually, they listen to what I said, and they believe me, um, you know when i told them that x y and z was happening um so I, I just think with hr it is a vulnerable area and you know we are in a society that loves litigation um which i detest but um you know you've got to as long as you're following procedure and you're working within the law you've got an employment contract i mean i once had to let somebody go in the probation period and their response to me was I am shocked that you are letting me go because you have got a reputation as somebody who gives people a second chance and will try and try and try again. Um, and that you're really supportive. And I just said, you are completely misinterpreting the ethos of the charity towards a young person and your position where you've got a contract of employment with us. And that contract of employment means that you get excellent of, you know terms and conditions and in return you'll do this and you're not doing it and you've not done it and i've asked you 10 times and you're still not doing it so it's totally different you know to throw that back in my face that we're not being supportive is bobbins and i think maybe that goes back to your question about the myth that people perhaps sometimes think they're going to get an easy ride working for a charity i can assure you that's not the case either
1: Not not in your one anyway. (laughs) No, on my watch. Not a chance. Well, it's interesting. I think going back to what that gentleman said at the awards dinner, and he said to you, you know, you are a fantastic businesswoman. And we talked in the the beginning about the myths about working for a charity. You know, this is turning it on its head. I think there's a lot of business people out there who can be learning from what it is that you're doing. Um, And I think to have vulnerability-based trust in a team, in an organization is really important that where there isn't vulnerability based trust, then you're going to have people not admitting to mistakes, not asking for help when they need it. Um, And both of those things often lead to poor decisions and bad things happening further down the road. And sometimes it's, about okay this might be really hard to do now for me to be in this vulnerable position or it might be really hard for me to make this hard decision but if I don't do that now I'm actually it's like smaller pain now or bigger pain further down the road.
0: Absolutely, absolutely that's definitely the way that we approach things and as I've grown the organization and grown the management team that is one of the key messages I'm giving back you know Have these conversations early on and for God's sake, write it down. Um, Follow it up. Follow it up with targets but make sure, you know, that welfare is always paramount. You know, that you've considered that, that you've explored every avenue with with people to help them, whether it's training needs or whether it's, um, you know, there's something going on in the team. Let's not just assume that they can't do what they're supposed to be doing. Um, You know, we work in a, in a system that's got a no-blame culture. Um, and that's actually been really difficult to implement because I am just not a blame person. And I think that culture, a lot of the culture comes from the top. I mean, it's just inevitable. And it's been so difficult to get people to believe that I really am not a blame person. And you can only do that by when something's happened and then responding in the appropriate way. So because things don't happen that are bad, you know, very often to us, it's taken a long time for me to say, right, yeah, okay, you've given me that bad piece of news, it's fine. What do we need to move forward? What are the risks? What's our communication strategy? Who do we need to tell? How do we, you know, limit the damage um, and go through a sort of systematic checklist of what we're doing? I've never ever, I don't think, while I've worked here, said to anybody, what the hell have you done that for? Who is responsible for this? Heads will roll, and you know it's just we're not like that. I'm not like that, and therefore we're not like that. So I think that you know after eight and a half years, they can trust me to not overreact and, and not panic. um But it, it's very hard to get other people to to trust that, especially if they've had a negative experience somewhere else, which I have to say a lot of people have. A lot of people I, I work with have said, "Oh, you know, the last person with this, that, and, oh my god, how did you stay there for so long?" But people do; they feel trapped. Some
1: terrible bosses. There truly are terrible. I don't know how people get away with it. I really don't. I, I think some people have an expectation of, "Oh, well, it's work. It's supposed to be a bit crap." And I just think, no, <laughs> we spend way too much time in the workplace to, whether it's your own business or whether you're working for somebody else, yeah. that we need to be doing roles that we are naturally good at, yeah. that we, where we really add value, that we enjoy, where we know we are making a difference yeah. and where we get to work with people where there is mutual trust and respect. And, you know, saying that, I'm sure there you're sure you're nodding your head and going well yes yes of course that's that's what you would expect in a workplace <laughs> it seems obvious when you say it yet there's so many workplaces that actually don't have that and yeah. it it always comes from the top for sure uh, i mean you can have the odd little pocket in an organization but generally speaking what's what's going on at the top in the leadership team, the way they act, not what they say. Like you can have policies coming out of the wazoo, but if the leadership don't actually, if they act differently than what they say, people know that's what builds the culture is how the leadership act.
0: Yeah it's true and I think that leads into you know when I am talking about leadership or I do any sort of inspirational speeches which I do from time to time one of the things to talk about is integrity and authenticity which fits right in with what you're saying in that you know I've got a couple of examples where I was once offered um, a free something for free from one of our suppliers and I needed I needed this item and I said to him can I have a quote for the item and he said yeah um, you know, but I won't be charging you. It's free. So I said, well, then I won't be having it because, you know, I can't. And he said, well, you give me loads of business as a company. So I'm letting you have it for free. So I said, no, you can't do that because, um, it isn't, you know, it isn't ethical. And, uh, and he said, well, nobody will know. I said, I will know. So I can't have it. So if you're not going to charge me and charge me properly, then I'll buy it somewhere else and you won't get me business. I mean, you can carry on doing whatever for backup, but, I won't buy from you. Anyway, he thought this was rather odd. Um, you know, but practice,
1: which is interesting in itself. You know,
0: he he couldn't believe it. He How many other I,
1: people had, had he you done know, this odd. with?
0: Yeah, so that was one thing. And then recently, uh, internally, as a result of my um sort of family circumstances, I've not been able to work all my hours all the time. So we keep timesheets, and I've been, you know, getting further and further back. So I just emailed the board to explain to them that I was 60 hours down on my timesheet as a result of um, some change in my family circumstances over a period of time, which they were aware of, but I just wanted to be upfront, and I told them. And the response I got back was, you know, that's fine, but um, it's about outputs, not inputs. And however you want to record it, whatever you want to do is fine with us. You've more than enough demonstrated the outputs are still happening even within these hours. So, it made me smile, but I emailed back and said, we can't have one for all for everyone else and one for me. Um, and no. So I've worked back the 60 hours now. It's done. I only owe them three. So I'm nearly finished. I'm nearly clear of my, my debt of hours. Um, but I just thought it's lovely that that's how they feel. But absolutely not. We're having different rules for members of this organisation. If somebody's down on their hours, they make it up. If they're up on their hours, they get a break. you know brilliant and uh, that's what i'll be doing tomorrow i'm having a day off on trial yay
1: (laughs) wonderful (laughs) when it comes to the the board when it comes to your senior management team and other meetings that go on in the organization what's one thing that you think works really well and what's one thing that you'd like to improve with the board and the well, with, with meetings or the board or your senior management team, whichever comes to mind.
0: Um, I think that it, it works really well now because we've got such a good relationship and, you know, I've been here for eight and a half years, as I've said, and so they know my track record, they know how I work, I've got a great relationship with the chair and, and all the board members and they're all very different. Um, they're not just a group of, you know, nodding dogs, there's 12 people they come from different backgrounds from business from public sector um, from housing from non-housing and they bring incredible skills and experience to the board and they're really supportive of me personally and they're very um, supportive of the organization and they do exercise good governance you know there are times when they'll say to me no you know we're not doing that because of this let's explain the rationale Sometimes I do get carried away, I get a bit passionate, and I want to do it and I want to do it now. So there is a bit of that. But I think in the early days, um, the question would be easier to answer because it was a lot smaller. And so we didn't have all the skills that we needed. We didn't have like any business sector people there. So it was difficult to sometimes get a different perspective, um, which is more readily available now. And again, in the early days, we didn't have a senior management team. When I came as the as the director, um, eight years ago, there were two project managers and myself. But now we've got 11 um, in the management team. We've got nine project managers and two directors and myself. So it's significantly grown. So in terms of having the right structure and we've got the infrastructure, which for a long long time we didn't have. Um, so now I would say it's in a position where it is or I think it should be. It's in the past where, you know, we've, we've either not had enough numbers um, or it's not been strong enough or we've not had the right skill set. But now it's very, very strong. And I think that, if, you know, if I wasn't here for a period of time, it would run quite efficiently without me. And that's really where you want to be as a CEO. You want to be able to sleep at night thinking someone else has got things in hand and that everyone's safe. And for a long time, I didn't feel like that.
1: I think that's a really good point, what you're saying about having that trusted team so that you can sleep. (laughs) And and hopefully they have trusted teams so that they can sleep (laughs) as well. What do you think is the most important element of building that kind of a trusted team?
0: I suppose it's going back to the, uh, linked a little bit to the comments you made about vulnerability, that I'm quite um, a heart-on-your-sleeve sort of person so I don't mind saying to somebody, you know, I've done this, I've made a mistake, um, you know, I've, I've dropped a clangor, I'm going to have to deal with X, Y, and Z. So I think the managers have seen me, uh, or meals up and say, you know, I took the wrong, t- I made the wrong decision, we need to pull it back, uh, I'll have to apologise or whatever, whatever it is. Pretty open, and that openness, plus the enthusiasm and the passion for what we're actually doing with young people, it's infectious. You know, you can't, you can't resist that for very long. Um, you know, when I get under your skin, um, if you're in, you, you know, you, you'd have to vote with your feet and, and get a job at Barclays Bank or something. You know, I don't know you'd be able to stand it for very long if you didn't like the enthusiasm and the spontaneity. Um, because even though we've grown enormously, we're still at a size where we can be, quite creative and, and make decisions and sort of act on them quickly which I love that's what I love about being in this sector um, and not having the red tape but I think the the managers you know the you build trust over time and I think you know in order to get that you've got to lead by example so you've got to be open first you've got to sort of make your disclosure first your appropriate disclosure can say you know it's I haven't always been a CEO, I've been a manager and I've been a team leader and I've, I've been a frontline worker and I've worked my way up from the front. And I think that's gained me a lot of respect in, in this organisation, particularly as some of that frontline work was here. Um, you know, I think that's, that's definitely helped my reputation. Um, and that, again, you know, over time, you've just got to be consistent. You know, you can't try and think, right, I'll be open and honest this week and I'll try and build the trust, but I'll be a complete wazzerk next week, Um, you know, and go back on everything I've said. You've got to have that consistency of approach. And, you know, part of that is about my personality, which, you know, people will either love it or they hate it. That's fine. That doesn't mean we can't work together. But I think that if I'm consistent, I don't have a a temper. I'm I'm not really a blame person. I'm a bit of a forward-looking, solution-focused type person. I just don't see the point in worrying about things you can't control, whether that's at work or anywhere else. I mean, I had an appraisal with somebody last week. She'd written down, you know, I worry that I've not done X. And I said, what are you worried about? And she said, oh, I am worried about I didn't know how to do this, and I didn't know how to do that. And I said, if I'm not worried, you should not be worried. Why would you be worried if I'm not worried? You know, that particular task, you've done it, you've done it well. told you you've done it well. Please don't worry. You should only really be worried if I am, um, and I don't worry, there's no need, because, you know, we do have some quite difficult situations to deal with here. I mean, life and death situations, really. Um, so worrying about admin and IT, you know, really, it can it can all be fixed, it's not flapping, it's fine.
1: Well, I think that's a great attitude to have. I am also somebody who has let go of worry in my life. (laughs) And it really does increase the quality of your life when you don't spend time worrying. It
0: does. My friend bought me a a bracelet a few weeks ago, sent it through the post. And on the inside, it says, today, I will not worry. (laughs) Love
1: it. Absolutely love it. Maura, what would be your advice to other female leaders in terms of so imagine, you know, somebody who's listening who perhaps they're in their first management role or maybe they're in middle management looking to to get to be in that board position or CEO? What would be one to three things that you would recommend that they do or don't do? Um well, these are not in sort of
0: any order of importance, but I think that be clear about what you want. So, you know, they, they say, don't they, be careful what you wish for. So be clear about what you want. And when you know what, what that is, treat it like any other project. You've got to have a plan and work out the steps from A to B um, and whether they are huge ones or small ones. And then plan out what is going to take you from A to to be know how many steps it is so that might be that you volunteer to sit on a different board to get some board experience um and some strategic experience um i think the thing that i found when i first started to be interviewed and um put myself forward for like the more senior roles like from the ministry of justice onwards and they kept talking about strategic and strategy and, and i thought i don't know what they're talking about i don't think that's me i don't think i'm whatever that is, it's not me, I've never heard of it. So it was before Google, um, but I just, you know, winged it. And then, you know, when I did understand what it meant fully, I realized that actually I am incredibly strategic and I've been doing it for years. <laughs> so I think, you know, just be, be confident and, you know, and, and make sure that you've got your knowledge that back backs you up and, and just sometimes actually, I don't mean wing it in a, in a reckless fashion that you put yourself and other people at risk, but take a chance. Um, you know, I applied for the job in London as the CEO of Advance, which is the domestic abuse charity. Uh, I didn't know where I was going to live. I had no idea where I was going to live. Got offered the job. I turned up at the train station on the day to go for the interview and my booking hadn't gone through for the train tickets. There's some cock up. And they said, well, it's done now. The money's gone back in your bank. You'll have to buy it again. But I bought a cheap train ticket. So to buy it on the day, it was 364 quid. And I thought, oh my God, do I want this job that much? You know, 364 quid. Anyway, I thought, oh, balls to it. I'll do it. So I stuck it on my credit card and I got on the train and my friend was on the train going to a meeting in London. So we chatted all the way down, which was lovely. I went for the interview, got the job, And then thought, well, I don't know where where I'm going to live. Uh, I'm starting this job in two months' time, and I don't know the area. I'm obviously not local. I can't just pop round and view somewhere. So I ended up going lodging with a couple, and uh, they said they'd let me stay there for eight weeks while I could, you know, go round and view places. I found them online, and I stayed for 18 months. And they were lovely. You know, I had a great time at their place. They were travelling so much, I just looked after their flat. So I ended up doing things that are just a bit random, you know. Um, So yeah, take a chance back to you. Sorry, I'm digressing here, but take take chances, but calculated risks. Don't put yourself at risk. Um, You know, there's a limit to what you can get away with really. And I think the other thing is if you're a middle manager or a new manager, don't try and run before you walk. Um, you know certainly have aspirations and put the things in place to get you from A to B but there's no substitute for experience and whether that's work experience life experience people management experience supervising people it is an invaluable skill and the biggest thing that I've learned to do as a leader that's that I don't see in other people that I think oh my god I'm so good at this it's unbelievable And that is delivering difficult messages. It's a really difficult skill. And um, I think because I've mastered that and I can do it really well and I'm not afraid of it, I'm not afraid of anything really. um, It just is a very, very important tool in the toolkit. So just try and get some opportunities to do things that take you out of your comfort zone.
1: I think talking about what you want as well can open up opportunities Um, I remember being in a, a job where I kind of took the job wanting a different job in that organization and um, everybody who I met they kept saying oh so what brought you here and I kept saying oh well I'm really interested in xyz three weeks after I started the job I got seconded to a project to do what I was I was actually interested in <laughs> So absolutely, having that clear idea and creating that plan, I think, is, is, is really important. Um, you mentioned there about being able to deliver difficult messages. What are your tips for how people can do that?
0: Be prepared. So make sure you've got all your information because um, in my setting, it's usually to do with some sort of HR issue or terms of conditions or change none of which people really like um, so make sure you're armed with your with your cast iron rationale and your business case for whatever it is you're doing um, and that you are prepared and that you've considered the recipient's position and the surroundings where you're telling them who they're with whether it's a group setting or whether it's one-to-one that you've considered all those factors and the timing of it um But I think that when it comes to actually, you know, here we are saying the words, just say it. Don't flower it up. Don't take 10 minutes with a Catherine Cookson introduction to get the goddamn points. Just say, I need to tell you this. This is why. This is what I'm telling you. We need to discuss it. We can either do it now, or I understand it might have come as a bit of a shock. We can, you know, get together again another time and just be a bit mindful that, something that you've processed if it's a if it's just change for example so if i'm implementing change in the organization and i know i've got to bring others along with that i might have been thinking about that for a year so it's no big issue to me i can't wait to get going so i have to curb my enthusiasm so it doesn't sound like i'm bulldozing over people because i'm so excited about getting something done that i have to sort of think no this is a massive change for that person or that team And I need to be really understanding of the position and the fears around it. Um, Whether I think they're rational or not, doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. So it's, it's just being, you know, a bit decent about it and thinking about other people before you just think, yeah, well, there it is. But also, You know, if you are delivering bad news, there's no point flowing it up and taking 10 minutes to get to the point because they're not listening to what you're saying. They're anxious as hell. You know something's coming because you probably look petrified. Just say it. And I'll give you one practical tip. When I first ever had to sack somebody, I was absolutely bricking it. And I knew that when I got in the room, I would end up going bright red because I could feel my neck burning even at the thought of having the meeting. So what I did was wear a scarf. What <laughs> a big scarf on, because I didn't want to give the person an impression that I was what's up or agitated about this. I wanted to look as cool as a cucumber. So if you're the person that I sat once in the middle of summer wearing a bloody scarf, <laughs> that's why?
1: Some great tips there. And um, yes, I can totally relate because actually the topic that I was interested in was change. And so I got to work on change programs. And the the people underestimate how much they need to communicate to bring yeah. people along with them. And your point that like they haven't had a chance to process it yet, but you have. Yeah. So so it's it's easy for you because you've already gone through it. Um and actually the first change program I did for that organization uh, was to do with restructuring. It was kind of merging some regions together and restructuring and, and making efficiencies which is code for making people redundant and um i got i got given an organization chart one day and went oh my job isn't on there <laughs> no one told me <laughs> i read it in the organization chart. oh my god i i was actually okay about it i, I literally went oh okay <laughs> I and it was fine. It actually was fine because they kept me on to to work on other change programs, and that's really what I wanted to be doing. <laughs> However, can you imagine if I hadn't been in that position and I was like, "Oh, this is how I found out that I know yeah, I've got no job." <laughs>
0: yeah, no. It, I mean, it's just it's thoughtless, isn't it? And the impact is could have been really damaging.
1: Absolutely, it could have been. Thankfully for me, it wasn't, and I had. I had begun nowhere near, nowhere near like where I am now, but I, thankfully I had begun my personal development journey at that point. So I was a bit more confident than I, than I had been, uh, certainly in the past. Have you ever wondered why most time management and productivity systems fail despite the huge amount of information that is out there? So why is it that so many business owners end up overworked and sometimes even burnt out? The answer is flow, or rather a lack of it for too many people. I've put together a free 50-minute jam-packed training video where you'll find out how to consistently get in flow, how to increase sales, reduce stress and overwhelm, and have more fun, focus, and creativity without being worked into the ground. Now here's some things that I'll reveal on this free video training. So number one, what is flow? The nine elements of it and how to identify it, why it's so important to reduce stress and overwhelm and increase focus. Number two, why many well-meaning business coaches, consultants and trainers can actually handicap you from having sustainable growth. Number three, the three specific elements of flow that you need in place in your business and the simple yet profound tool that makes this easy to do. Number four, the golden rule of flow that underpins everything without which it's impossible to implement in your business. And number five, the one thing that will free up your time and increase your productivity so that you can get what's most important done. And you'll also learn the real reason behind why even those who do know how to get into a flow state often end up not mastering it. Sound good? Well, many other business owners just like you have told me how much they got from this training too. So head over to creativeflow.tv, Get Flow, or click the link in the episode description. The point that you made about people have to catch up with you is that it's not just that they need time to process. It's also the fact that different personalities need different amounts of time to process, different depth and detail of information. Some people will get caught up in the enthusiasm and be, yay, let's go for it. And other people are going to be, looking at all the potential risks and what might go wrong and and looking at all the negatives and quite often they can get billed as negative nancies whereas actually when you know you get people involved in change then you can harness those people's way of thinking they can feel better because they are participating but it can't be done and i've seen it happen so many times where organizations are giving lip service to having people involved, but they yeah. actually do not listen to yeah. what they say.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we had a, a proposal out a few months ago about restructuring the way that we paid the salaries or um, the the actual levels of salaries that are paid, and I sent out the proposal, and get you know let, said you know uh, if you could let me have your feedback within a month or something like that. And um, within a couple of days, two points had been raised that actually ruined the whole proposal, as in it just wasn't going to work. It was, one was an error that I'd, I'd um, overlooked and the other one was um, more to do with the principle of, of the way that one of the projects was constructed. And I hadn't thought, I haven't, it just hadn't occurred to me. So in the end, I went back and said, Uh, you know, I'm not going to leave it until the final date for all the feedback because the feedback I've had shows that this is flawed. Right. I missed this and I got that wrong. So forget this, just forget it. I'm going to actually redo it and send out a complete new one. So I think that showed the people that did bother to send me those two bits back saying, are you aware that this is wrong? And you know, this is missing. Oh no, I can't believe it. So and um, you know they obviously think well that piece of information i sent in has brought that process to an end um, so obviously it has been listened to and it, she meant it when she said the feedback would be valued and, and what have you so we you know i did it again did it correctly and um, you know went through a bit more rigorous checks and what have you it's gone out it's gone through everybody's happy with it everything's fine um, but I think, you know, there's no part asking for feedback or even operating at any level of consultation, whether that's, you know, formal or
1: informal, if you've no intention of doing it anyway. What a waste I of... Agree. It. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, yeah. It's like when companies do staff survey. Do you do survey, staff surveys? In yeah, we country? do
0: an annual survey, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've I've kind of walked into roles in organisations where they have done a staff survey, and then they were so horrified by the results, they never did it again. And they never gave any feedback. And it's like, no, no. (laughs) Because always the first, anyone, you're listening to this and you're about to do a staff survey, it's the first one, I am telling you now, the chances are the results you get, you're going to be horrified yeah that's normal (laughs) It's normal for the first time you do a staff survey suddenly people who've never had a chance to express what they think are being asked what they think and some of them are going to tell you not all but some of them are going to tell you yeah and and might tell you more than you think you wanted to know (laughs) yes actually when you keep doing it and when you keep having regular surveys and it doesn't have to be an annual survey every year like you know they a lot of companies now do pulse surveys in fact there are people who are doing surveys around covid um i can point people to a great direction for that by the way and it, it's got to be continuous you were talking earlier about consistency that's another yeah. area where people have to be consistent is in asking for feedback and acting on that feedback yeah. And and look, I mean, that's what a classic example. And thank you for sharing that, Maura. You know that situation with the the uh, salary proposal. You you know you could have if they hadn't spoken up, and it had proceeded, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. So the fact that you went and got that consultation, there was something you weren't aware of. Yeah you're the CEO, you're not involved in the day-to-day of every little role in every product, I don't mean little role, disparaging, but I mean, of every role, you know, that are might be a few layers of people removed from you. And particularly as the organization gets bigger and, you know, if you're, your organization that you're listening from is a larger organization, there's a distance, you know, there's a term called ivory tower where, and I, I, I think that, term of like leadership being in an ivory tower it's not about the size of the organization it's about the leadership being unaware of being so distant and believing that they know what is best without asking and understanding the impact of different ideas
0: well there's a a famous quote isn't there and I, I probably won't get it right now but something along the lines of you know while you're talking you're not listening So you can't understand what's going on if your lips are flapping, you need to zip it is basically what it's saying in a much more eloquent way than that. And I think (laughs) for years, I have learned to listen and learned that in leadership, it's not all about front-facing, forging ahead. Sometimes it's about being at the back, pushing other people up and forward, or just sitting back and listening. Because, you, you know, what do they say? You can't work on your business if you're always working in your business or something like that. So, you know, it's those things, cliches or whatever, um, they're they're true. And you know, that brings me back to the, the story that I was telling you about when I moved into the scheme. Um, you know, that was about trying to listen to and understand the young people, I'd not been in the organization long, maybe a couple of years. And I'd had a run in with a young person who, um, and flooded his accommodation by leaving the bath running, so he, he was just on the defensive and thought I was going to shout at him, but I wasn't. But anyway, he went off on one and just sort of said, "Look, you, you, meaning all the staff, you, you have no idea what it's like to be homeless. You don't know what it's like, um, you know to to be in this situation. You don't give a shit about us. You go home at five o'clock, you're driving around in your car. You've got an house. You, you're not interested." And and it went on and on and um, you know that all got resolved but afterwards i was thinking i don't know what it's like to be almost now i was almost at 16 but it was totally different to what it is now um and i don't know what it's like to live on our scheme so maybe there's a way of finding out so i worked out that while one of the flats was in in between uh, being occupied and being decorated i could live in it and um so i agreed to do this as like a mini experiment so i Met with a group of young people and said, I'm going to move in for a week. I'm going to not pretend, but you know, live as if I was just coming onto the scheme so you can decide what items, what possessions I can bring with me and what I can't, uh, the amount of money that I have. And one of the girls volunteered to come with me during the shopping uh, and sort of act as a bit of a support worker and you know turn the tables a little bit. And it was all filmed, it's all on the website somewhere uh, where you can see this. It's called the Walker Mile. Walk a mile in their shoes challenge and uh, and then I also somebody suggested when I was about to start it why don't you get people to sponsor you uh, so I ended up raising 1200 quid at the same time so that was pretty good. But I lived in, in one of the flats for a week and the young people said that I could have uh, I think it was 42 pound uh, based on the current job seekers allowance that was available at that time very limited toiletries, one pair of shoes, three outfits Uh, No car, no laptop, no phone, uh, you know, the usual stuff. So I moved into the flat. There was no gas connected for the first three days because the staff member had forgotten to sort the meter out. Oops. When I turned up on day one, she looked absolutely petrified and said, I've got to tell you, there's no heating and no hot water. It was February, it was bloody freezing. So I said, well, what would we normally do? If this was a young person signing up now, what would you do? And she said, we'd stick some money on the electric meter and put a a, a blow heater in. So we'll have to do that. I can't possibly turn around now to everybody and say, I haven't moved in because the gas is not connected. I'll get slated. So I moved in. And uh, so I couldn't have a bath or a wash or anything for three days. That was pretty bad. I was using a boiling kettle. And, um, but you know, the things that were really difficult was the isolation because I wasn't allowed visitors and only so many places that you can go to on limited money um and the tv was also not working there was something wrong with the aerial or the digibox or something i don't i don't do tvs but the only two channels i could get was bbc good food which i thought was an absolute joke given that i had no food and no money and the other one was babe station so I know I I couldn't believe it. So I had to get somebody to come and fix the aerial. But So I didn't watch the TV for about four days. So that was quite difficult as well. Um, I had one book, but I honestly, I couldn't even be motivated to read. Um, I went for a few walks, but it was just, I don't know. There there was no, I've never experienced any sort of mental um, issues myself, mental health issues. Uh, not, Not, you know, seriously. I've been fed up obviously, but I really felt more, uh, and absolutely lacked motivation, which I wasn't used to. I wasn't used to not having a purpose because I wasn't working. I'd, I'd boot a week's leave to do this. Um, so yeah, it was it was bizarre. But I also realized that there were some practical things missing out of our flats, things that would help young people just to make their life a bit easier and make it feel a bit more homely, which we changed um, as a result of that experiment. So it was, it was bizarre. I had no money left at the end of the week. I think I had about 70 pence left on the last day. And when I asked a group of young people what was the most difficult thing they would experienced about living in the Scheme and they said, as I said to them, I know that I'm going home on Sunday. I know that this is just an experiment, you know, I'm not trying to make light of what you're experiencing, but what's the worst thing? And one of the young men said, the thing that's upset me more since I moved in is I didn't have enough money to buy my mum a birthday card. And he said, it's just the small things. And so now she thinks I didn't care, but I have no money. I have no money to even eat. So now we provide a stash of birthday cards for young people to use for whoever. And it's just small things like that that make a difference to their life, that they can just come and pick up a birthday card for free. It's not a big deal.
1: Well, what a wonderful experience and what fantastic was, things have come out of that it
0: was yeah it was an experience and I did joke with the management team saying that I was going to make it part of their induction every time we recruited a new manager and um you know there was a few oh my god anyway I told them I was joking but you know it was not for the faint-hearted I'll tell you that I mean we went shopping I went shopping with a young person and picked up some um meatballs off the you know when they get reduced stickers on or get eat bowls and she said oh you can't you can't have meat we can't afford meat you've only got 10 pound for your food for a week you can't afford to buy meat all like, oh, right okay my young people don't have meat it's, it's just you know and that I haven't I mean I knew they were on the bread line and I knew that they were we were topping up you know with food parcels and donations and everything but just a blanket statement like that she was very matter-of-fact no we don't eat
1: meat certainly makes you count your blessings.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Fabulous. Well, Maura, you have shared some amazing stories and some wonderful advice. I'd really like to thank you for your time here today. Um if you were to sum up kind of in one golden nugget your success, what would that be?
0: Oh I think you know it'd have to be something apt for people that know me would be that, you know, I've got balls of steel. And I use them.
1: I love it. (laughs) I do remember being told um, by my first ever life coach, women have balls too. They're just bigger and higher up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I think your strength of character has come through and shows why you have got the many accolades and the many achievements that you have, um, you know, created in your journey so thank you very much for being here today and thank you very much for what you're doing through backup and with with your teams for the young people in the region i'm sure they really appreciate it too
0: thank you thank you it's a a privilege um i appreciate the opportunity to speak but i am so happy in this role i i feel like i'm the one that's that has the privilege and the, the honor
1: where can people find out more about you and backup Maura?
0: We have a wonderful website, which is uh, www.backup-charity.org.uk. We're also on Twitter and we're also on Facebook under Backup Charity.
1: Fabulous. And I will share those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Maura. Speak soon. Thanks. And that's all for today, folks. Make sure that you subscribe to get more of this juicy goodness for your business and check the description for links mentioned in this episode. Enjoyed this free broadcast? I want you to know that I go so much deeper into the topics discussed so you too can grow a fun-to-run, highly profitable business that increases your impact and your creative flow. If you'd like to know more about that, let's arrange to hop on a call. You can set that up at creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una. That's creatorflowtv forward slash call with Una.